0: Okay, Um, before we get started today, I think I'm going to mention this now, so I don't forget. Uh, Johnny thought it would be good to mention uh, that we've got two new Sunday school classes coming up next week. So, don't think that we're going to have a break, and you know, I don't want you to miss something good. Uh, John Weiser and Scott Wade are going to be teaching out of Romans uh, for a uh, 12-week course. And then Ryan Moore and uh, Murray Sombrio are going to be teaching on following Christ from start to finish, the race that we run as Christians. So, I think those will both be really rich and good studies. So, please don't... Uh, oh, good to see you, Sue. <laughs> uh, I think those will both be really, really good for us. So, don't miss out on those. Um, and now, let's open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to get into this, the last week of this study. Uh, I, I really would love to hear your thoughts and questions this week. I'll try to give you a little bit more time than I normally do. Um So, let's pray. Dear God, you are a very present help in trouble. You are with us. You care for our needs. You guide us. Lord, so we don't fear. As Christians, we don't have to fear, even though the earth seems to crumble beneath our feet. You, Lord, are with us in, in, in every situation of our lives, You are our fortress, you protect us. Lord, you make wars to end and you bring peace. You know us and you know our situation in life, Lord, because you've experienced it. Lord, you walk with us in the fire and the flood. Your steadfast love, Lord, is better than life. Our true life is found in you, Jesus Christ. So our lips will praise your name as long as we live no matter what our circumstances are. Lord, pour out Your peace and Your hope on Your people so that we can live in a way that would draw many to You. I pray, Lord, that You would bless this time today as we look at how to have hope in the face of the worst circumstances. May Your name be praised today as we seek Your face. And it's in that name that we pray now. Amen. Good morning, guys. Um, Keller has a nice uh, quote that we're going to lead off with here today. He says, There's nothing more practical for sufferers than to have hope. The erosion or loss of hope is what makes suffering unbearable. So let's talk this morning about hope. And we're going to turn to John's writing in the book of Revelation to do it. Now, growing up, I was scared of the book of Revelation. It scared me to death. I, just, I didn't like it. I was told it had all kinds of scary end times meanings. Uh, and I was shown different intricate explanations for how it should be worked out. How the details that fit some teacher's specific scenario uh, for how the world would end. Or how all the details fit their scenario. But I've grown to realize, uh, through good teaching in the church over the years, that that's not really what the book of Revelation is about at all. It's actually a book of great hope for God's people. In, uh, in a book by Vern Poitras, uh, who's a, a seminary professor, among other things, uh, called The Returning King, A Guide to the Book of Revelation, he says, Revelation is a picture book. It's not a puzzle book. Don't try to puzzle it out. Don't become too preoccupied with isolated details. Rather, become engrossed in the overall story. Praise the Lord, cheer for the saints, detest the beast, long for the final victory. I think it's a good outlook to have when we look at, it, at the Bible as a whole, uh, but especially at the book of Revelation. Um, it's good to be caught up in the story instead of trying to take specific scriptures and and say, this is this or that is that. Um, and I think we'll see that today as we get into looking at what John has to say in Revelation 21. So I'm going to start there. I'm going to read Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Um, this is You've heard this passage a million times. But it's such an important passage for the early church, and it's such an important passage for us today as Christians. <clears throat> in it, he says, Will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So we're not even going to begin to touch the details of this passage today. There's no way. Um, there is so much here. And yes, we could get caught up in the details, and they're good details. This is an area where we could look at the details and say, yeah, this is the uh, the story that God has for us, painted clearly in, in these five verses. But I want to look at a couple of specific things today and how they impacted the world in a great way, how they changed the church, how they changed really the world through Rome. <clears throat> So first of all, I want to look at who John is writing to in the book of Revelation. Um, Anyone have any thoughts? It it does say right there. That's always a good place to start. Look on the handout, I usually tell you. So, there you go. So John was writing to the early church, right? More important to understand is that he was writing to the deeply suffering early church. Verse 4 clues us into this a little bit. When he speaks about death and mourning, about crying and pain, these are things that they experienced, things that were important to them, things that would be important to them to know ultimately won't be there at some point. Uh, In the first, second, and third centuries, if you know anything about Roman history and church history, there were significant campaigns of persecution against Christians in Rome by at least eight different emperors. So if it's not isolated to a few minutes here and there, a few months, a few years. This is constant. You're talking about hundreds of years of significant persecution. Um, now, Revelation was written near the end of the first century, at least we believe it was, in our church. And we know that the Roman Emperor Domitian was ruling during this period. And his persecution of Christians was absolutely unthinkable. What do I mean when I talk about the church and say they were under serious persecution? Well, some Christians had their homes taken. Their stuff was stolen. Now, these are the lucky ones. These are the ones who who got by pretty easy. Um, Others were sent to the arena where screaming crowds watched as they were torn apart by wild animals because they were Christians. Then others still were impaled on stakes, and while they were still alive, they were covered in pitch and lit on fire. That's persecution. When we think of the the persecution we face today, it doesn't begin to compare to what these Christians, these these young Christians in a time where the church was young and everything was new, the things that they dealt with. So those are the types of things that the emperor was doing to the early church, among other things as well. Those are the ones that really stand out quickly though. Um, And these are the people that John is writing to. So perhaps these things will start to tell us not just who he's writing to, but why he's writing as well. So why is he writing it? Yeah, I see there's a lot of suffering in in the church, but do I think my letter to these people is going to make any difference? Do I think that, that what I have to write is somehow going to help them? Well, as I've already said, John writes to give the church hope. It's not a false hope. It's not just hope for things to get better. It's not... When your friend says, I have cancer, and you say, it's going to be all right. right," It's not that kind of thing. For one thing, that's not always true. This is not a false hope. It's not just something to make them feel better. You see, these are people who understand that this life may not offer them many good days, or really any good days for that matter. So as Christians, the thing to understand is they represented a threat to the power of the emperor. He sees this growing group that is bonding together in unity. What's going to happen? What's going to happen if these people keep growing? So, he decides to put them down. And around every corner for them was the potential of uh, terrible tragedy. It was beneficial even for Roman citizens to turn in Christians. So, they would often falsely accuse them of things. So, they could gain for themselves... And be a part of, you know, a, a part of the power, as opposed to a part of the oppressed. Um, I think we've seen similar treatment today of Christians in parts of the Middle East. It, it's jarring in our current time to watch the type of persecution that we're seeing finally be made more visible. Not that it's ever stopped in parts of the world, but we're seeing it made more visible. Um, And and seeing people forced from their homes, people forced to either renounce their religion or die, uh, people forced into slavery, uh, people forced to leave everything they know for the sake of Christ. And and we're seeing that today. It's not that different than what these people experienced then. Um, If a a Christian at this time in Rome was taken before the uh, tribunal, The only way they escape the death sentence is by renouncing their religion completely. But these Christians didn't do that. So there is serious persecution that we're talking about. So John must offer serious hope. Not just words, not just platitudes. And he does. He offers an ultimate hope. It's a living hope, as he says. Simply put, he told them this. In a nutshell, there's a new heavens and a new earth. Coming, that's basically it. He tells them that Um, that that's the main thing he gave them to face their suffering, and that may not seem like much uh, when facing the type of suffering they were facing. But we'll look at it a bit better in a few minutes to see just how much hope that really offered the early Christians, and how much hope it can offer us too. But first, let's talk about the effect that the hope John gave them had. I want to see where this led kind of in the timeline here. In other words, what was the result of John writing Revelation? It's a simple fact of history that the writings of John worked. That's the really cool thing. We can look back at history and say, this fledgling little community didn't die out. Not only that, they expanded exponentially. So, the hope that he wrote to the church, to these early groups of Christians meeting... Worked. We know that that early Christians took their suffering with great poise and peace. And, and we have uh, accounts of them singing hymns as they were killed in the arenas. They forgave people who were killing them. The crazy thing is this. The more the Christians were persecuted, the more they were killed, the more the Christian movement grew. So instead of snuffing out a growing movement... Rome had instead kindled the fire. They'd stoked the flames. It's hard to believe when you really think about the story. If we were to watch this in a movie, do you really expect this to happen? If you read it in a book, do you expect that's the way it's going to go? That the all-powerful god of a ruler in the emperor doesn't have the power to snuff out a small group, a small religious group that really has no power in and of themselves. So the church grew from a little spark to a roaring blaze all over Rome. And what Rome intended for evil, God had used for his own good. But that doesn't make sense, does it? Why would the slaughtering of Christians grow the church? Do you think that would grow the church here in America? Honestly, think about it. Isn't the greatest revival happening in China where the people are so persecuted? Absolutely. The point is made time and time again in history that the greatest revivals come from great persecution. It doesn't make sense to us who have not been persecuted. It doesn't feel like it could be real. But when we look at history, when we get to know people who have been under persecution, you begin to see a different kind of hope than we have ever personally experienced. It's from the same God, but we've not experienced it perhaps in the same way. I think that's a great point. Thank you. Um, why did people join a movement that might lead to their death? Were they just brainwashed? <laughs> you know, is it a cult? Is it? Those are the kinds of things that come into my mind, you know. You're told somehow there's some greater good that's going to be worth it. It's all going to be worth it uh, in the end. It's not quite like that. I think the answer is this. When people watch Christians facing death with peace in their hearts and forgiveness on their lips, they began to say, these people have got something special here. I've never seen anything like this. Rome doesn't seem to offer me anything like this. Um, none of the uh, philosophers seem to offer anything like this. This is something special. But what did these people have? What did they have? In, in the face of death... As we hear from Paul, as we hear from John, they had a living hope. So what really was this hope? We can say words, we can say living hope, we can say ultimate hope, we can say all these things. But what really is that? And why is it so good that it could cause me to not flee from death, but to run to death? To run to an almost certain death. Tim Keller tells a story in, in his book. Um, oh, let, me, let me give you this quote first. He says, Human beings are hope-shaped creatures. The way you live now is completely controlled by what you believe about the future. I think that's really true. Um, even if you don't realize it, you're always thinking about, about what is to come, about what my circumstance will be. Um, We lie to ourselves and tell ourselves things are going to be better than they are so that we can be okay now. Um, If I know something really horrific is coming, it makes it hard to continue right now, even though maybe the bad thing isn't here yet. I think that's definitely true. So Keller goes on to tell the story of two men who were captured and thrown into a dungeon. Just before they went into prison, one man discovered that his wife and child were dead. The other learned that his wife and child were alive and waiting for him. Now, in the first couple years of imprisonment, the first man just wasted away, curled up, and died. But the other man endured. He stayed strong. He walked out a free man ten years later. So, notice these two men experienced the very same circumstance, right? Virtually. They're both, for whatever reason, without details, thrown into prison. They both find out some bit of information about their family. One doesn't have a family anymore, and one still does. One doesn't have hope, and the other one does. So, while they experienced the same present, they had their minds set on different futures. It was the future that determined how they handled the present. I know I've certainly seen this to be true. Um, looking at, the lives, at my own life, at, at the lives of my friends and family, and seeing... The way that our futures affect here and now. So I believe John was right then to help suffering people by writing this and by giving them hope. Of course, he was given it by God and he didn't have a lot of choice. But apart from that, I think he was right in doing this. Let's look kind of at the comparison of two different futures that people could have uh, that John is dealing with. The first is this. Um, when you die, your, your body simply rots. That's it. The idea that maybe someday the sun will die and all human civilization will be gone. We hear that a lot. You know, do everything we can now because ultimately it will be gone later. Um, try to postpone those things. Put them off by taking care of, uh, of what we have. And thirdly, no one will remember anything anyone has ever done. At some point, because everyone will be gone, right? That that is a a worldview that some people have. Now, John offers a, a a different worldview. He says your body will be resurrected and made perfect, not rot when you die. He says that the heavens and earth will be made new, and will be a place you can live in endless joy. And he says this too, this is highly important when you're dealing with people who are severely oppressed. Every evil deed and injustice will be redressed. It'll all be dealt with. So those are two absolutely different futures, right? It makes sense that depending on which one you believe, you're going to handle your suffering in two absolutely different ways. So let's actually turn for a second from the early Christians and look instead to African American slaves. In 1947, the scholar Howard Thurman gave a lecture at Harvard um, on the meaning of the Negro spiritual. I think it's a really interesting case in our history to be able to look at and see a people who who had a very specific vocal way that they shared with us what was going on in their hearts and minds. Um, People often criticize these songs as being too otherworldly. And yes, they were filled with references to heaven to Judgment Day, um, to crowns and robes and things that seem otherworldly to us. Some people said that all the talk of heaven made the slaves too resigned to their condition. But here's how Thurman responded to these criticisms uh, in his lecture. He said, The facts make clear that this sung faith did serve to deepen the capacity of endurance and the absorption of suffering. It taught a people how to ride high in life, to look squarely in the face of the facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that the environment, with all its cruelty, could not crush. This enabled them to reject annihilation and to affirm a terrible right to live. So Thurman was arguing that the slaves had the hope of the early church, right? These are people living in absolute oppression. But they had this same hope that the early church had, same hope that people of China, the Christians of China have. Um, They knew that eventually all their desires would be fulfilled and that no perpetrator of injustice was going to get away with anything. That all wrongdoing would ultimately be put down. And that was a hope that no oppression could extinguish. So here's a clear example of a people whose hope was not in their present, but in their future. There is no hope for today, but there's always hope for tomorrow in their minds and in their hearts. And they kept that hope alive by continuing to sing it, to sing it with each other, to sing it on their own. Keep singing. <laughs> T.S. Lewis says this, Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. So important for us to remember as Christians, we are not escaping. Um, But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. So when we think of heaven, when we think of our eternity, when we think of all that were promised in Christ, when we think of our resurrection, we're not escaping this world. We're, we're not trying to flee our bodies. We're not trying to flee the things that we have here. We're trying to find them ultimately. We're looking forward to, um, to the ultimate fulfillment of all the things that are not quite right here. And so, what we do is we enjoy those things here and now, even as we suffer. We see tastes of what Jesus has for us in eternity. And we don't escape. By thinking about how things will be, we work to make them that way even here and now, as much as God makes us able. that's what the early church did. They responded to the hope that John gave them for their future. It's not just salvation in Christ, but bodily resurrection and a perfect eternity with Him. With this in their minds and hearts, as I said before, the church grew exponentially. That's why we're here today as the church. It's because of these Christians, because of the way they suffered, because of the way that God caused them to be able to handle it with poise and grace with peace in their hearts that can't be explained with human understanding? Courage, Courage, absolutely. And courage is given by God. Courage is not something we muster up. It's not something that's inherent in us. It's something that's given only by the grace of God in our lives. To be able to face, as as, uh, Thurman said, to face squarely the facts of what is coming against us. It's only when you don't pretend the things are not happening. It's only when we face the troubles directly and head on that we can even have courage. <laughs> you don't show any courage if, if you are pretending or if we are trying to get around them or wait for them to, to somehow dissipate. Um, <clears throat> so let me, let me say again something I said last week when we talked about peace. I think we'll kind of drive the point home. But instead of peace, I'm going to replace that with hope. Um, and the point still stands because the peace and hope of God are found in the same place. Here's exactly what I said last week, but with hope instead. The hope of God's people is a hope that makes no sense at all to the world. Why? Because the world doesn't understand resurrection. You'll remember I said this. It's a hope That is only found when our trust in God is not changed by our circumstance. This is the hope that remembers Jesus was raised by this God and I will be too. So I said, remind yourself of this. This is the God who raises the dead. It's not hyperbole. It's flesh and bone fact. Resurrection is real. And if you want hope or peace, both, you better learn to cling to it. Because this is our hope. Our hope is resurrection. And, and the beauty of it is we already have the resurrection of Christ. So things are already being made new. Our hearts have been made new. And we have that to share with the world here and now. So we don't have to live as people who don't have hope. Because the hope of what will come is already in us. And it affects how we act, how we think, how we feel, how we talk how we deal with the junk that happens in our lives. I hope (laughs) that this church can cling to our resurrection as we cling to the resurrection of Christ. And I hope that we can encourage each other in that and that we can continue in that One of the main points, I think, through this study has been that every day we have to keep walking in the same things. They don't change. God calls us to the same things. Peter says, continue serving this God. Continue being a part of the church. Continue doing good even while you suffer. Paul shows that he continues doing the same things while he's suffering. Because when is he not suffering? Jesus was steadfast in all that He did as He suffered for our sake. This is what we're called to do. So right now, when your life is good, if it is, and I know in this room, they're not all good. But right now, whatever your circumstance is, keep doing the stuff that we're called to do. Pray. Spend time earnestly praying and seeking God's face, even when you don't feel like it. When you feel spiritually dry, when you don't feel like worshiping God, worship Him anyway. When you don't feel like being around people because you're dealing with whatever junk is in your life, be with people anyway. God says don't isolate yourself. Be with His people. Ultimately what happens, and we'll talk about this in a moment as we kind of review, ultimately what happens is eventually... Your heart starts to change. You continue walking. And we remember it's not continuing to walk because I'm able to walk. It's not continuing to walk because I have good in me. It's continuing to walk because Jesus continues to walk with me. We see it all through the Old Testament. Jesus walks with the people, He cares for people in the midst of their suffering, He is there with them. And then we physically see in the New Testament, He physically walks in our suffering. And He takes on the ultimate suffering for us. So we're made able to walk. Remember that we have been comforted by God, so we're now made able to comfort others. Put effort into that. Think about people. Think about their lives. Spend time comforting. It's what we're called to do. We've been freed up to be able to comfort because we've been comforted. And we have the power to do it the same way that God comforts us. And that's a beautiful thing. So I want to spend a few minutes, and I want you, as I talk through these ten things I'm going to go through here, if you have thoughts or questions, because we're kind of reviewing the whole class, please speak up. Uh, this is your last, last moment, your last chance, at least in this class, to do it. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, so if we know the biblical theology of suffering, and if we have our hearts and our minds engaged by it, then when difficulties come in life, when we have grief, pain, and loss, we're not going to be surprised. I don't think we should be surprised when we suffer. If we're not surprised, then we can more easily respond in the different ways laid out for us in Scripture. So Keller's kind of broken this up into ten ways to kind of review um, what he's teaching in the book, and and we'll use more or less those same things. Um, Ten ways that you and I can respond when the pressures of life are too much for us. We started out by talking about the varieties of suffering. So we have to recognize there's more than one type of suffering, right? There's all kinds of suffering, really. Um, Keller did a pretty good job, I think, of, of organizing them down into four different ways that people suffer. Um, and there's a lot of overlap when you're dealing with someone's individual suffering. It um, comes from different angles, different, different places. But first of all, he said that there's suffering brought on by your own wrong behavior. We all deal with this because we all sin. Um, And that kind of suffering brings guilt and shame. So that's important to remember, uh, especially as we're helping others, as we're dealing with ourselves as well. But if we're helping others, you have to understand this type of suffering may have been brought on by their own behavior. So they're dealing not only with the consequences, but with the guilt and shame of that suffering. Secondly, he says we have betrayals and attacks by others. So my friend... Goes against me. He he doesn't stick up for me. He does, you know, whatever. There are all kinds of ways that we are betrayed and attacked. And certainly we see countless times that, that men of God are, are betrayed and attacked in Scripture. Ultimately, Jesus is, is the greatest one. Um, but this type of suffering tends to bring anger and resentment. And so when you're dealing with this type of suffering, you have to remember... I'm dealing not just with the effects of the suffering. I'm dealing with the anger and resentment, probably, in this person's heart. Then we have universal suffering. The, uh, the kinds of things that affect everyone, like the death of a loved one. Um, illnesses. Uh, Keller says financial reversals. Or even just dealing with your own imminent death. These things tend to bring grief and fear. So we have to remember that. And then fourthly, he says we have what he calls the horrendous. So the unbelievable, unexplainable things like a mass shooting in a church uh, or, or a natural disaster or you know, in a school or a natural disaster that wipes out thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people all at once. And, and this type of suffering tends to bring confusion and oftentimes anger at God. So it's important to remember that when we're dealing with different kinds of suffering, looking at the varieties, that um, they're going to have different results in people's hearts. And so we approach them in different ways. <clears throat> Secondly, he says, we've got to recognize distinctions and temperament between yourself and other sufferers. That's important too. The suffering is different, but the people are different as well. Um, we have got to realize that God may not lead me through a particular trial in the same way that he, he led someone else through something similar. So I can't just cookie cutter say, oh, you did this, it was you know, got you through, I'm going to apply this to my life. So we have to understand different temperaments and personalities that people who suffer have. So to be of real comfort, we've got to understand the shape of someone's suffering. Uh, as I said before, but also the shape of their hearts and their personalities. Not all people find the same things helpful. So remember, think. <laughs> Get to know people. Be compassionate in that way. There's no one-size-fits-all approach to how we comfort those who are suffering. Thirdly, weep We've got to be brutally honest with ourselves and with God about our pain and our sorrow don't push it back don't pretend it's not happening lean into it <laughs> the phrase i hear a lot lean into your suffering at times weep. weep yeah with others who are suffering absolutely and let them know it's okay that's what we're called to is to weep with those who are weeping and rejoice with those who rejoice we are one body so we should absolutely be affected in this way by their suffering. Um, can't deny our feelings or try too hard to control them in the name of being faithful. I think you see that kind of the... the trying to be faithful is ultimately Stoicism. Just, I'm good, I'm okay, because God is good. So I'm, you know, I'm going to pretend it's not really happening. Um, but if we look at the Psalms of Lament or at the book of Job, we're going to realize that God is very patient with us when we're desperate, so we should pour out our souls to Him. Fourthly, Keller says we should trust. Although we pour out our hearts to God with emotional reality, we're also called, on the flip side, to trust God's wisdom and His love. Because He's sovereign, and because He's been through what we go through, that's why we can trust. Despite our grief, after honestly saying, like Jesus, let this cup pass from me, we learn to say, thy will be done, again, like the example of Jesus. So, wrestle with your grief until you can say that to God. That's what Jesus did when he prayed. He wrestled with his own, his own grief until he could say to God, thy will be done. And we do that together in community. It's an important part to remember. Um, as we weep, as we deal with our grief, we learn to trust through community who comes alongside us. fifthly we pray when we struggle we should do it before God in prayer even when we complain as Job did we should do it in prayer to God God's big enough to take your complaints He wants to take your complaints He wants you to bug Him no matter where your heart is as you deal with whatever your hurt is deal with it with your Heavenly Father in prayer Along the lines of continuing to pray when we suffer, we should also continue to be in God's Word. As I said a minute ago, continue worshiping with His people, even when it feels dry and painful. The uh, French philosopher who I brought up a few times in the study, uh, Simon Veil, said, If you can't love God, you must want to love God, or at least ask Him to help you love Him. We find ourselves in those different categories at different times in our Christian walk. But what does she mean? I think just that in our struggle, we have to make sure we struggle with God and not away from Him. So, no matter how you feel about God, deal with it with Him, not anywhere else. Sixth, we're called to be disciplined in our thinking. So, meditate on the truth and gain the perspective that comes from remembering all God has done for you and is going to do. Do what David did in the Psalms. Listen to your heart and reason and talk. To your heart. It's a funny sounding thing, but when we ask, Why are you cast down, O my soul, as David does in Psalm 42, we can answer our heart and remind it to forget not his benefits, forget not his salvation, as David then does in Psalm 103. You're not forcing yourself to feel in a certain way, but instead you're just directing your thoughts until your heart, uh, sooner or later, is engaged. That's what I was talking about a minute ago. Keep doing these things. God will begin to get your heart engaged ultimately. Much of the thinking and talking to our own hearts that we must do has to do with Christian hope. If you're dealing with death, uh, your own or someone else's, then heaven and resurrection and the perfect world to come are particularly important to meditate on. Seventh, do some self-examining. Every time of adversity is an opportunity to look at ourselves and ask, uh, ask, how do I need to grow? What weaknesses is this time of trouble revealing in me? So we see, we didn't talk about this a lot, but we see the biblical image of suffering as a gymnasium in Hebrews 12. So the idea that you're being trained through pain, and that later produces results. And the results are a harvest of righteousness and peace, it says there. The Greek word for train used here is what where we get gymnasium from. It means to undergo specific exercises, deliberately aimed at strengthening weak parts of the body and further enhancing the strong ones. Now, I'm not saying you should always be looking inside yourself for the cause of your suffering at all. But I'm saying that all suffering is a chance to grow in grace and maturity, as Job ultimately does, even though his suffering was not caused by his own doing. Eighth, we have to be about reordering our lives. Suffering reveals that there are things we love too much or we love God too little in proportion to them. We often make our suffering worse because we turn good things into ultimate things. Suffering will only make us better rather than worse if during it we teach ourselves to love God better than before. How do you do that? You have to recognize God's suffering for you in Jesus Christ and then pray, think, and trust that love into your soul and do it every single day. Don't stop when it hurts. Don't stop when you don't want to do it. Do not shirk community. Number nine. It's easy when we feel like things aren't going well, when we don't feel put together, or when we feel angry or spiritually dry to avoid God's people. Suffering can be so isolating. But we look to the early Christian communities as a perfect place to be a person in suffering Christians in the early church, it says, died well. Um, that's what the early church authors claimed. Not because they were rugged individuals, but because the church was a place of unparalleled sympathy and support. Everyone knew what it was like to suffer, so they suffered together. The Christians, uh, Christian gospel accounts for and assigns meaning to the experience of suffering as secular society cannot and as you alone cannot so sitting under gospel teaching in church is exactly where you need to be when you're in pain on top of that we find a community of people who have been comforted by God so Paul would tell us they are now equipped to comfort us it's the perfect place to be and then lastly and this is hugely important receive grace and forgiveness from God and give grace and forgiveness to others some forms of suffering particularly the first two that we talked about Um, the kind that we bring on ourselves and the kind that are betrayals and attacks from others. Um, They require skill at receiving grace and forgiveness from God and giving grace and forgiveness to others. When adversity reveals moral failures or sinful character flaws, it means we have to learn how to repent and seek reconciliation with God and others. So think about Joseph's brothers here. (laughs) They learned this lesson. They learned... Uh, reconciliation through the suffering that came on them and all the people of the land. When our suffering is caused by betrayal and injustice, it's really crucial to learn forgiveness. Think Jesus. (laughs) Pretty good example there. If we ever want to pursue justice effectively, we have to forgive wrongdoers from the heart and lay aside vengefulness. That's how we suffer well. When we do it in community when we suffer together, when we're joyful together. All these things go hand in hand. We can't, we can't separate the suffering of life from the joys of life when we do it in community as a church together. Um, and it's a beautiful thing how much it can change your heart to go through the worst things you could imagine in your life because of how much better... God is at dealing with those things than you are and how great of a plan He has for you in not just your own little story, but in your, your community story, in the story of the church as a whole, and the story of the world as a whole. It's just so much better than just your everyday circumstance. So learn to love that story and, and to allow that story to affect your little everyday circumstance. Remembering that God is with you in that. So, are there any big thoughts or questions in the last couple of minutes here that that I can point you to someone else to answer? <laughs> yes, Andrew. More just to thank you to both of you for leading the study and taking the church into a topic that I think we all know we need to be thinking and talking about. And, well, thank you. you know, I Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I thank you guys for listening uh, a whole lot. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that and just being willing to, to talk about this topic as well. And um, I encourage you to keep keep thinking about these things. Uh, it's such an important part of who we are uh, in Christ and who we are as the church. Um, perhaps it will help us to extend outside of ourselves and outside of our, our little walls here too. Yeah, Daniel. Of, uh, of uh, in the Old Testament of suffering and the, the problem of suffering and the question and it's interesting to think that that there's some evidence that that book is older than Genesis mm-hmm. you know, that in fact they had that book before right the, you know when Moses wrote the first five books mm-hmm. they had that it's interesting to think if you were to you know kind of in your mind place that book is the first book. Yeah. You could say that the issue right there, right up front in the very beginning. Yeah. There was suffering from the beginning. Uh, it's never. God's plan has never not dealt with suffering. <laughs> Even from the very beginning, um, He was working to fix things. And. Uh, I'm just blown away by the story of the Bible. <laughs> it, it, it is an amazing story. And just to live in it daily, to, to think this is real. This is our reality. This is not just a, a book that we choose to believe. This is a book that historically um, is the greatest thing that's ever changed the world. Um, being the Word of God from <laughs> from Christ and what He's done for us. Any other thoughts? Any questions? Then I'll let you all go in a second. Lily. Yeah, we see okay. it's you make it me centered, and, you know, how do I find the uh, I guess it, it takes effort and, of course, uh, resistance from the blessed Holy Spirit to train ourselves to make it God centered. Yes. Not just saying, Yeah, He's sovereign, he's, you know, but His purposes, a <coughs> so that, you know, uh, we see. This providence, even in that, absolutely. And, uh, and, I mean, this is quite a while since so I can't remember the days, but uh, the mystery of providence, and uh, I encourage you all to read uh, John Phillips' mm-hmm. book. I mean, uh, it was so life-changing. I mean, just to train my thinking for to yeah, rest, to yeah. to train your thinking that yeah, ultimately it really so, is not me-centered. Yeah. It's it's about the sovereignty of God and. Not understanding. So thinking, you know, I right. So I just sure. His own purposes, but yeah. his purposes are just more just important, important than my purposes. <laughs> his ways are better than my ways. That is, um, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> that his ways are better than my ways, yet his steadfast love is better than life itself. Um, when you put those things together and live it out, <laughs> it, it does change things a lot. Any other thoughts, and then yeah. That's cool. what I loved about the history books, along with Joe. Mm-hmm. It was it entered people's lives. Mm-hmm. You knew the almost day by day what they what they rejoiced in and what they suffered from, yeah. and it's just I don't know it. Uh, it's good to to get into those because then. You don't, you don't have as much time to feel sorry for yourself. And <laughs> you see the reality of yeah, their suffering for real, that, sure. You know, <coughs> yeah. Think, I don't have it so bad after all. Yeah. You know, and we don't, you know, just, uh, just brush away what we're going through. No. But uh, in a lot of ways, it's it's a really good coping mechanism. It's it's good to give you strength when you see through their suffering what the result of it was. Sure. And, and it, well, it gives you historical perspective, and that's why we remember the stories over and over and over again. Um, and it gives us people who suffer with us, along with Christ. Yeah. Let me, let me pray quickly. Thank you all for your participation. Then we'll, uh, we will go into worship. Lord God, thank you that um, though we suffer, we have Christ, and He is all we need. May our satisfaction be in Him, and in Him alone, um, in You alone. Um, Lord, fill our hearts with peace and with trust in You, in Your ways, in Your timing, uh, that we might suffer well when we suffer, that we might praise Your name continually, no matter what our circumstance is, and that the world would see and know that You are a God who has done great things for us, so that the world will praise Your name as well. And so that your name will be made known, and be made great, um, instead of just mine. Um, thank you, Lord, for this, this time of study. And I pray that we would continue as a church in encouraging and walking in these things, learning them, Lord. And uh, prepare our hearts now for worship, I pray. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.